0: our music director, when he says he's hiding under the mistletoe with a bunch of men in the room. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Well, you know, we normally take this uh, take this Thursday off, the one right before Christmas, but I didn't want to do that this year because we've got this great Christmas story about the beheading of John. <laughs> and you can you can tell folks, yeah, we, we really celebrated Christmas at Amen this morning. We talked about that sexy little tart, uh, Herodias' daughter, and... Herodias, that evil woman, and Herod who who wanted to behead John. That was our Christmas story today. So if you'll turn to Mark chapter 6, we'll have this little Christmas story. And it uh, begins with verse 14, going through 29. Now, what we're we're entering into here is actually a new section of Mark. Uh, after the disciples are sent out two by two to engage in mission, the word really goes out. And Herod, who is the... The ruler over this part of Galilee and Perea, which covers all of Galilee, and then goes down a thin little strip all the way down uh, to the Dead Sea, actually, on a thin little strip around the Jordan. Uh, he begins to get wind of Jesus' uh, miracles and of his disciples' power as well. And obviously, things run by rumor in those days. You, know, you have no daily newspaper Everything travels by word of mouth, and word had definitely gotten to Herod and Antipas uh, about this Jesus, and Herod is immediately concerned about it. We'll see why. I mean, for a number of reasons, but one, of course, that's unrelated to the beheading of John in some sense, is that Jesus is preaching a kingdom, and he's demonstrating incredible power. During this section, that runs from 614 through 830, where we get the high confession of Peter. During this section, we'll find Jesus often retiring beyond the borders of Galilee. And this is very, a very famous section because Herod Antipas, who had taken the life of John the Baptist, you know, was a threat to take the life of Jesus. And Jesus did not want his life taken until he got to Calvary's cross so that he could die for us. So, Jesus would do some things and say some things, and then he would go just across the lake, just across the, the Sea of Galilee, and he'd be in another area, and not under the rule of Herod Antipas. So, this is a section where Jesus, having announced his message and shown his power, uh, is now in a period of just teaching the disciples and going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee when he needed to find relief. It's also a section which is pervaded by the word bread. We'll have here the feeding of the 5,000 and so on. And it's very interesting. Jesus is the bread of life. And we find bread throughout here. And we also find, as he teaches his disciples, pervasively uh, the words of hardness of heart, unbelief, not understanding. So Jesus is spending more time with his disciples now, kind of beginning to pull away and retreat, and speaking to them, and they don't get it until the very end when, of course, Peter makes his confession. And it's a picture of ourselves, how difficult it is for us to get it. Even when we know some of the doctrinal formulations, we still don't get it until God breaks through and gives us deep insight to understand who He is, who we are, and what salvation is all about. But it begins now with this story of Herod getting the news, hearing about Jesus, and then we recall what he did to John the Baptist. And we're going to see why that story is put in here at this point. Let's pick up then with Mark chapter 6, verse 14. Let's read through verse 29. King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl And she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Okay, what we want to see in these first three verses is that it is very difficult to identify Jesus. And we find the crowds having difficulty identifying him. We find even the disciples having difficulty identifying him. And sometimes we find today people having difficulty identifying him. The three most common, popular descriptions of him was that he, he must have been John the Baptist, read of Vivu, John the Baptist resurrected. Uh, even in Jesus' day, of course, there was some idea of resurrection, and yet this is sort of a superstitious way of looking at it, that this would be John the Baptist in another body. Crazy. But that's what people thought, because it was the same message. He was preaching repentance. He was an itinerant preacher. He was preaching with power. And add to that, he was doing miraculous works, which John the Baptist apparently didn't do. So it looked like it was just John the Baptist taken up to a new level. That's what some people thought. Some people thought that it was Elijah, because you may remember in our study of the Minor Prophets, those of you who are with us, we saw the very end of the Minor Prophets. We're told that this Elijah figure, Elijah himself, will return. And he will he will be the forerunner for the Messiah. He will proclaim uh, the kingdom that is coming. Some said, well, this is it. This is the Elijah that was promised. They thought Jesus was Elijah, just like some thought that John the Baptist was Elijah. And then thirdly, some just thought he was one of the prophets because there were some sort of uh, myths that Jeremiah or Moses or others would come back as well. Uh, or some could have pre- could have supposed that Jesus was simply in the line of prophets, that he was the next of the great prophets to come along. These were typical popular assessments uh, of Jesus Christ, and they couldn't quite get the full story about Christ. But on the other hand, if you called Jesus a prophet, you're correct. He was a prophet, and Jesus really, in many ways, presented himself as prophet. He acted like prophet. He preached like prophet. He used analogies like prophets. He quoted the prophets. So, in one sense, uh, it is accurate to say that Jesus is a prophet. The problem is, it's just not The whole story. And even today, it's difficult for people to identify Jesus. Who is he? You find uh, in the last century, there was a lot of debate about whether the virgin birth could really be true. And some said, do you really have to believe the virgin birth to be a Christian? Well, of course you do. Why wouldn't you believe the virgin birth? The reason you wouldn't believe it is that you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. God of God. Light of light. Very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Uh, That's the problem with not believing the virgin birth because you don't believe the the deity of Christ. If you believe the deity of Christ, the virgin birth is no problem. (laughs) Of course. How would you expect deity to take on flesh? The virgin birth only makes sense once you embrace the mystery. But it's very difficult to embrace the mystery of God coming down and uniting himself with flesh and Jesus Christ being deity himself. It's very difficult. And so we look for other paradigms in which to explain it. I wish to explain it. And it's true today. People are still looking for some, there's got to be some explanation for this great historical figure, Jesus. And you find, of course, all the news magazines once or twice a year around Christmas and Easter are trying to wrestle with it and trying to find a, find other theories to explain him. Well, it's difficult to identify Jesus, especially if you don't really believe in the miraculous and in uh, the deity of Christ. And you find even, if you'll turn back for just a moment to Matthew chapter 11, Leave your finger there, Mark 6. You'll find that John the Baptist had difficulty identifying Jesus. Look at this text in Matthew 11. Before John's, John's now in prison. He hasn't yet been executed in Matthew 11. And look what he says. Beginning of Matthew 11, we're told after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing he sent his disciples to ask him, look at this question. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? What? John the Baptist had been spending his entire preaching ministry talking about repentance and then when Jesus came along, he baptized Jesus, he pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, you know, that I must decrease in order that he must increase. And he he proclaimed Christ. He proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. And now he says, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? <laughs> what, what happened to him? Was, it, you know, was he going crazy in prison? You know what, what was going on with John the Baptist? Here's what was going on. John the Baptist, just like ourselves, had assumed that when you meet the Christ and when he comes, everything's going to work out just fine. All your problems are going to be solved. And in a sense, that's what the Old Testament had said. That when he comes, he's going to bring in the kingdom of peace and the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the child will crawl over the hole of the cobra and we'll beat our swords into plowshares and it's all just going to be great. And John was thinking, well, this is the moment and this Messiah is to take over and rout the Romans and restore the kingdom to Israel. And that wasn't happening. And here John The main proclaimer of the Messiah is in prison. And when you're in prison, as your great reward for being a righteous man, you begin to wonder about the movement in which you're engaged. So John was saying, did I make a mistake? And you know what? Guys today do the same thing. They think that if they give their lives to Jesus Christ and they become Christians, all your finances, you're always going to have 20% more in the bank than you actually needed for your bills each month. Your wife is going to just love you because you're a Christian man. You're not going to have to deal with sin anymore. Just handle that on the backstroke. It'll be easy. You won't get yourself in any more problems. You won't disappoint yourself with moral failures anymore. Life is going to be a breeze. And your kids will all grow up and get graduate degrees and support their parents in their old age. And your your grass will grow at the same rate, you know, and no weeds. And life's going to be easy. And then you find life is still hell in this in this world. And uh, begin to say, is this, did I, did I pick the wrong religion or something? What's the deal here? And that's what, that's what happened to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the greatest man ever born of a woman until Christ came. He was a man who was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he was the greatest of them all. And he gets confused. So don't feel badly about it. Well, maybe you can feel badly about it, but just remember John had to feel badly about it too. Uh, But anyway, look at this. He said, should I expect someone else? And look what Jesus said. Go back, he says to his disciples, and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So Jesus didn't send John any cream puff message. He said, look, the new age has not yet been consummated. You go back and tell John that the new age has already invaded the old world. And the blind can now see. The deaf can now hear. The lame are now walking. And we are taking the gospel to the poorest of the poor in society. You tell him that's already started. So that the end of the kingdom has already started to happen. Hasn't come to consummation yet. And for that reason, you're going to get yourself in all kinds of trouble. That's one reason sometimes it's difficult to identify who Jesus is. Because life doesn't seem to be going right. And we can't figure out if he's really the one who was to come or we should wait for somebody else. And Jesus said, don't be confused. If you'll look around and think about it, you can see the invasion of the future already coming into the present. It's already beginning to work. Those of you who have already met Jesus Christ savingly, have given your heart to him. He's given you a new heart. That is one of your greatest evidences of the kingdom coming among us because you have been given a taste of the kingdom. You've been given what we call a down payment. You've been given earnest. You've been given the spirit by which you can taste what's coming. So you can, you can palpably sense it if you have this new heart from above. If you don't, you can look out at the evidence and see that things, you can see lives being changed around you. Some of these guys that used to be absolute hellions and are only now half hellions, uh, they, you know, they had their lives changed. They had a turn of orientation in their whole heart where they used to take advantage of people. They were actually looking to give to people. Where they used to ignore the poor. They actually have a heart for the poor. Where they really didn't care for anybody except their three acres and their high wall and their house. And they don't really care about the entire Mid-South region and have a heart for it. And you find people changing. Well, that's an evidence to you that something is going on. The new age has invaded the present age. And there's evidence there. But it's difficult. The evidence does point to Jesus as prophet. But it also points to him as much more. Now, notice uh, then what we have with Herod himself is that our guilt points to Jesus as avenger. Look what, look what Herod is saying. He says in verse 16, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So, once again, Herod has heard, heard something about this idea of resurrection. It's in the Old Testament, after all. And he's saying, ah, oh, this is John getting revenge. The ghost has come back. And so he's taking in a lot of superstitions and sort of spirituality and mixing it all up in his own experience. And that's driving who he thinks Jesus is. And you know what? The same is true today. People have guilt consciences. And it drives who they think God is. And what they think God is is some moral policeman uh, up in the air with a big billy stick in his hand. You know, when he comes to earth, whack! You know, that's it. And that's the way we see God, because we have these guilt consciences. Well, if you'd committed murder, you ought to have a guilt conscience. And actually, every man ought to have one. If you have a guilty conscience, the good news is your conscience is working. It's right. You know, you're a sinner. You got that right. And there is a God, and you're in trouble. You got all that right. Here's what you got wrong. You left out the fact that God has sent a solution for this. That's the reason His Son died on the cross. is to remove your guilt. So yes, your conscience is to work, but it's not to condemn you if you know Jesus Christ. That's the glory of knowing Christ, is that He sets you free from the judgments of your own conscience. Now you have to cultivate that, because we've learned habits of condemning others and condemning ourselves for so many years. We have to learn new habits. But you learn habits to take off the condemnation from yourself and from other people. But it begins with yourself. Herod had not received a Savior. He was not trusting in the atonement that God would offer for sinners. He was dealing with his own conscience, and therefore that's going to dictate how he sees Jesus Christ. And it's the same today. Men will distort who Christ is because of their own whacked out consciences, their own guilt complexes. And guilt is extraordinarily powerful. As I've told you before, some psychiatrists will say that Seventy or eighty percent of the problems they deal with with their clients would be solved if they knew that their sins were forgiven. It's amazing, amazing, how the urosis and all the the psychological disorders are largely driven by guilt. That's the reason that Christ is so important to a person's own sense of well-being, because He deals with that internal self-condemning conscience. Well, that's what was driving Herod's view. He says, "This must, this must be John the Baptist come back. It'd be kind of like." uh taking your worst enemy who died, you know, and being spooked because you think everybody every time you see someone that's that's that guy coming back. Well, it is difficult to identify Jesus. But secondly in, in the major part of this text we're going to see it is more difficult to identify with Jesus. Yes, it is difficult to identify Jesus. I do I do have sympathy for you if you haven't yet identified him as Lord and Savior, because uh You know, in dealing with all the intellectual issues and then dealing with your own resistance to the reality of Christ, it's difficult. But it's even more difficult to identify yourself with his name and take his name upon you and walk in his steps. And after all, gentlemen, this is what this is all about, because you notice in this text some amazing parallels. You have, for example, Herod here who recognizes, Herod Antipas here recognizes John as a righteous person. He's drawn to his teaching because he hears some truth in it, but he's puzzled by it, and he's ambivalent about it. But he knows that something's going on there. Have you ever been in that kind of a shape? You know that the preacher's saying something that's useful, you're kind of drawn to it. You want to hear it, but you're not ready to identify with it or to fulfill the consequences or to fulfill the directions that are in the preaching. But you kind of, you know that you're dealing with something true here, but you don't want to give yourself to it yet. That's where Herod was. And it's interesting because with this case of Jesus Christ before Pilate, Pilate himself knew that Jesus was innocent and declared himself. So. so, both you see a parallel here with John the Baptist and Jesus. You also see a parallel with Herod, in some senses, not wanting to, well, he didn't want to kill John the Baptist, but Herodias was the one who had an implacable hatred toward John the Baptist, and Herod eventually gave in. Same with Pilate. He gave in to the clamoring of the people uh, to kill Jesus. He did not himself uh, want to kill Jesus, but he gave in to it. And you find him giving in to the, uh, yielding to the demands of others. So you find so many parallels here, and it's meant to be that way. For example, if you'll turn over to Mark chapter 9, you'll see a comment that Jesus makes. This is... After the transfiguration in verse 9, this is Mark 9, 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And then they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer much and be rejected but i tell you elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished just as it is written about him so before jesus makes his way to the cross he points to the to the elijah John the baptist so they did whatever they wanted to do to him and this is exactly of course what they did to jesus christ they did to him whatever they wanted to do to him so here is a, a definitely a parallel It's given to us in these verses 17 through 28, showing us how the passion of Jesus is really foretold in the passion of John the Baptist. You really have two passions in in Mark, if you will. Now, here's the connection with us. We're told that if we would follow Jesus Christ, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. There's a third passion, and that's your passion. So you have the passion of Jesus foretold in John the Baptist. Then you have his passion given to us in Mark chapter 15 especially. And then you end up with our passion when we take up our cross and follow him. So nobody is fooled. Nobody is thrown off track. everybody's warned right from the beginning. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, it's going to involve a cross. Well, no wonder people get ambivalent. No wonder people are almost Christians or somewhat Christians or kind of Christians or something like that. Who wants to take up a cross? There's only one thing that makes you want to do it, and that is you know that he did it for you. And you're so profoundly grateful. That you're ready to lay down your life for him. So we see here that there is an identity of John the Baptist with Jesus himself. Now, let's look at the ways in which it is most more difficult for us to identify with Jesus. Number one, we are subject to the whims of powerful people. We see this in verses 17 through 20. Now the background here is that Herod Antipas was the tetrarch uh, of this area from 4 BC to 39 AD. That's 43 years long-term uh, reign, and uh, he was uh, trying to present himself as the legitimate king of the Jews, and he wanted the title king, and Rome wouldn't give it to him. And you'll find some, you know, some uh, respect given him here. It's almost ironic. Uh, It's almost a backhanded slap because Herod Antipas never got the title of king, but he wanted to be considered the king of Jews. The reason that he wouldn't have been, the reason that he was a great offense to the Jews, was twofold. Number one, he established uh, the capital of Tiberias. Some of you have been around the Sea of Galilee and you've been to Tiberias. You've stayed in a hotel there in Tiberias. Tiberias was the capital of that area uh, that he established. But you know what Tiberius used to be? It was an ancient cemetery. Now think about it just a moment from a Jewish perspective. You don't go into cemeteries. It makes you ritually unclean to go into a cemetery. If you go into a cemetery, take like a whole week of cleansing to get yourself ready to worship again. So Herod Antipas builds his capital on ancient cemetery. What is he saying about the Jews? You're not very welcome. So there were very few Jews who would have lived in Tiberias. So there were no residents there. It was all Roman city. And he was just thumbing uh, his nose at the Israelites, uh, the Jews. Secondly, of course, from the text we know, he had an unbiblical marriage. Now, the woman, the, the little girl here uh, is Salome. Josephus tells us, a first century Jewish historian. Herodias was her mother. Herodias was married to Herod's brother, Philip, or at least half brother, Philip. They were both sons of Herod the Great, who, as you know, was a very wicked man. He built a lot of great buildings, but he was also, he would kill his own sons if they became a political threat to him. And you remember, he was the one who decided to wipe out all the boys under two years of age, simply to try to catch this king of the Jews in the net. And he didn't because they went off to Egypt. Herod was a wicked... Herod the Great was a wicked man. Had many sons. Herod Antipas was one of them. And then his half-brother Philip and there were others. So Herodias was married to Philip. She leaves him and goes over to Herod, which is a violation of the law of God in Leviticus. You don't marry your brother's wife, unless your brother died in a leverant marriage and his wife is passed down to you in order for you to take care of her. So this was an adulterous marriage from the first instance. So in many ways uh, Herod Antipas, it violated everything that the Jews held dear. He was not, uh, he was not a well-esteemed uh, leader among the Jews, that is. But Herod himself uh, was a powerful person even though he was not respected so much by the Jews. What we have to understand is there are powerful people around us. There are powerful political leaders. There are powerful business leaders. There are powerful religious leaders. And sometimes you are caught up in the crossfire. Sometimes you are caught up at their their very whims. We see sometimes that some will oppress us from pragmatism. And that's exactly what Herod did. Pragmatically, he had given orders to have John arrested to have him bound with chains and thrown in prison. Here you see some language very common to what you'll see in Mark chapter 15 with Jesus, who was arrested, who was bound, who was detained, actually in a prison for a few hours. And once again, foretelling the very passion of Jesus Christ. But here it says a result of Herod's pragmatism. Now, what is this pragmatism? Well, it's twofold. It has to do with a nagging wife and dealing with her, it also has to do with some real politic that was going on at the time. Josephus brings this out as he comments on this same incident. Josephus says the difficulty here was that Herodias was a replacement for a previous wife who had been repudiated, and she was a Nabataean. The Nabataeans lived in Jordan, just to the east of Perea down near the Dead Sea. So, Herod had been married to a Nabataean wife who was the daughter of Aretas IV who was the ruler of the Nabataeans. And he shafted her to go after Herodias. And the Nabataeans were royally ticked. Now you hear, you have John the Baptist who's a very popular preacher. as kind of the Adrian Rogers of the Dead Sea. And he is proclaiming that the king has an illegitimate marriage to Herodias, which the Nabataeans loved to hear because he had shafted their queen, their princess. And it was stirring up all kinds of political problems down around the Dead Sea and along the Jordan River. He was already having problems internally with the Jews who despised him. Now he's going to have problems with the Nabataeans. So, Herod, who knew that John the Baptist was saying something real and true, something he needed to listen to, couldn't help pragmatically and politically getting him bound up, putting him in prison to shut him up publicly. But the larger reason was a nagging wife who was really ticked off that the Billy Graham of the area was saying that she was an adulteress. That didn't go well with royalty. And so Herodias was saying to Herod, would you please do something about that blabbering preacher? And Herod would say, well, you know, he really, he has some good things to say. No, he doesn't have any good things to say about me and I'm your wife. You can hear it, can't you? If any ladies are listening to this, I'm sorry, I'm not making fun of any particular woman. Uh so you can you can hear the dialogue, can't you? So, you know, poor guy doesn't have any choice, does he? So he, he decides to bind up John the Baptist. Pure pragmatism. And, you know, I can see it happening all over the world. Christians are being destroyed from pure pragmatism. You can see it in Darfur, where the conflict is very complicated. It has to do with Arabs versus Africans. It has to do with... Uh, it has to do with uh, uh, Muslims and Christians. It has to do with uh, Arabs who are rather Africans who are uh, who are tilling the ground above a lot of oil fields. <laughs> uh, so it has economic things. but you can see how the Christians who were mixed up in this, they're not really taken into account. They're just caught up in a totally pragmatic political war where hundreds of thousands of people every year are being put to death with seemingly no good reason at all except pragmatism. And this happens to God's people. It really does. It happens to you. You can get caught up in things that don't seem to have anything to do with whether you did something right or did something wrong. Just because someone has not a very good, strong moral base and they're very pragmatic about it, want to keep their, their wife shut up, you get caught up in it. It can happen. It happens to Christians. It happens to John the Baptist. And then secondly, some will oppress us from pride. Herodias obviously was nursing a grudge. Now, you'll notice that John the Baptist made no distinction among men. He didn't have one set of moral values for the poor and one set of moral values for the rich. He didn't have one message he delivered uh, for those who had no power And then another message to deliver to those who are very powerful. He had one message. It was a message of the Word of God, fulfilled in the Messiah. That was his message. His message was one of repentance to everybody. And you have, if you're following Christ, one message. You don't have two or three, depending upon the audience. And you don't have a choice. And if God gives you an opportunity to make some decisions in view of some very powerful people around you. You have no choice. And if it means you die, you die. That's exactly what Esther had to say, wasn't it? That if I die, I die. But I must go in before the king and ask for his for my people before the king. And she risked her life. If you must die, you must die. And sometimes it's not a very happy thing to have to stand out in, in an immoral environment where there are very powerful people there. But John the Baptist realized He had no choice, nor did he want another choice. And you have to make the same choice too. And when you do, you're going to run into the very powerful pride that is in this world. The kind of pride that can destroy men uh, from the face of the earth. And that's exactly what happened to John the Baptist. Uh, Some will oppress us. Some will seek to destroy us because of their pride. But we must apply the word of God equally wherever we are. Gentlemen. I encourage you to do that wherever you are. Don't let yourself get impressed with the Herods and the Herodias' of this world because their destruction is soon to come. In fact, in 36 AD, what happened was the Nabataeans finally did wreak their revenge and they came storming down into that area. Herod was taken out of there and shipped off to Gaul where he eventually lost his life. And... The folks in that area said, Mm-hmm, Nabataeans have come back to avenge the death of John the Baptist. Uh, well, we don't necessarily believe that. But we do find that Herod and Herodias eventually evaporated from the face of the earth. Where's their hope? Where's their future? What was the purpose of anyone following them? But For those who followed John the Baptist over to the Lord Jesus Christ, they now happen to be in heaven reigning in glory and waiting for the glorious return of Christ to receive their entire inheritance, which is not only this world, but the entire universe. So don't forget what's at stake when you're dealing with the powerful of the world. But they will oppress us, and we can lose our lives in this life because of it. Some will oppress us thoroughly from ambivalence, and sometimes this is the most confounding of them all. He was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. You know how people can be puzzled. They hear the gospel over and over and over again, and they're still just puzzled. Why are they puzzled? Because they like an immoral lifestyle. They like the corruption that they have access to. They like being able to call themselves king and lord. They like having the the freedom to destroy other people and themselves, just like the gathering demoniac. We are so darkened in our sins, we actually like the very things that corrupt us and destroy us. And so we end up being ambivalent and puzzled when we hear the gospel. We hear the gospel we know, well, it seems true that Jesus was raised from the dead. There were 500 witnesses who saw him. There was plenty of evidence in his own day. There's evidence now for us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to devote our lives to him, but we're puzzled. Oh, I have another question. Well, thank you for that answer, but I have another question. Thank you. I have another question. And you go on with questions, questions, and questions, because down deep inside, no matter how much truth is presented to you, You're not about to accept it because of the darkness of your own mind. Because you've chosen a dark life over a light life. And as long as you do that, you will never have clarity. You will only be puzzled if you listen at all. Some will not even listen at all because they don't want to be puzzled. Herod had enough ambivalence about his life. He would listen because he was fascinated. But he was always puzzled. But he loved to listen to it because it brought some sense of reality and truth into his life. But he just remained puzzled and held it off. So the real problem is not an intellectual one. It is a moral one. Now you can see, for example, what happens to a person who's puzzled, who's just continually puzzled and never comes to a knowledge of the truth. Leave your finger there, Mark 6. Turn over to Luke 23. And here you have, you have the trial of, of the Lord Jesus. And he comes before Pilate. And uh, Pilate says in 23.4 to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Now on hearing this, verse 6, this is page 1690. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's, this is Herod Antipas, Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So Pilate was relieved here. oh, this man is under the jurisdiction of, of my good old enemy, Herod Antipas. And of course, as a result of this exchange of Jesus going back and forth, Herod and Typhus and Pilate got along fine for all the years after that, we're told. They became fast friends. They both hated Jesus. Uh, So here we have uh, him sending him over to Herod. Now, in verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Oh, Pilate thinks I'm important. Finally, I'm getting the honor that I deserve. Because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. Look at this crassness. Just wanting to see a power show. Wanted to see the magician go to work. That's what he wanted to get from Jesus. He plied him with many questions. Look at this. But Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers, look at this, ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, They sent him back to Pilate. That day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Look where it leads. You're you're puzzled. You have more philosophical questions, more questions. Enough truth has been presented to you to make it very obvious. Jesus Christ is Lord. And you are to be a servant. And you are to submit your life to him. But you just choose to be puzzled. Eventually, here's what it leads to. Absolutely ridiculing and mocking Jesus. That's the outcome of all of this. It's just another form of darkness. That's the danger in it. So when you say, I haven't decided yet, you have decided. You have decided that he is not Lord. And as long as you go in that way of thinking, it will eventually lead to taking your stand against him. So some will oppress us from that kind of ambivalence. And, and here's the way we get oppressed is that an ambivalent person, will always be open, not only to hearing the truth, but to hearing the lies. And when the political power on the left becomes more powerful than the right, or vice versa, they just give way to where the power is. And so you could be oppressed by an ambivalent person like Pilate or Herod, who have no principles, who have no framework by which to make a, a principled decision. And we are subject to that, just as John the Baptist was. Well, not only are we subject to the winds of powerful people, but we are subject to the murderous schemes of wicked people. Their plots are sometimes relentless. We are told that finally at this birthday party, uh, Mark chapter 6 again, finally the opportune time came. And how did it come? Well, because Herodias was looking for it. She may even have planned the birthday party. I suppose she did. Because it seems right away that when the daughter was told Even up to half my kingdom, she runs immediately to her mother. Why? Because her mother had probably told her to. Because Herodias knew the weaknesses of Herod better than Herod knew them himself. And anybody who's dealing with a Herod knows their weaknesses and can play them like a drum. And she was playing him. She got him into an area of his life where his pride would be at stake. He was a very proud man. He was also a very corrupt man. She had planned for her daughter, which would be Herod's stepdaughter, who we know from other historical facts was in her mid-teens at this point. So she's probably a 15 or 16-year-old, just you know having developed. And she, no doubt, did a very lewd dance here. It was completely unthinkable in this time, in the Roman Empire, for royalty daughter to do this kind of a dance and to invite the the lustful thoughts of all these drunken men who are around. But look at the corruption of Herodias. Herod himself, being an ambivalent man, is now open to the machinations of a very corrupt woman who would put her own daughter in skimpy clothes and have her do suggestive dances among these corrupt men and please all of them so that now... Herod and Tepus, in his moral ambivalence, would also be pleased if they were so pleased. And in this, the presence of the primary men of Galilee and all the, the rulers that he could get to his birthday party, he then promises her half the kingdom, anything that she wants. Herodias set the whole thing up. And Herod left himself wide open to it. And we're subject to it. That's the point that Jesus is making because we live in a corrupt world. Their plots are sometimes relentless, and here it came, the opportune time. Secondly, their plots are sometimes outrageously evil, as this one was. This little girl was dancing. Herodias had plotted it out, completely corrupt. I want you to give me right now, she said, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. How wicked can it be? Stepfather, right now, on a platter, to be offered up like the main course at a banquet, on a platter. I want the head of the greatest man who has ever lived in history. How corrupt. You see the darkness of this world and what we are seeing is this is what Jesus faced. It's what John the Baptist faced. And brothers, it's what you're going to face too and I'm going to face. Don't be naive about it. Yes, the kingdom has already invaded this world, but we're still in this world. And so when you face things like this, just realize this is what we're called to walk through. These are the people we're called to minister to. And we tell them the truth and we also convey the love of Christ to them. So their plots are sometimes outrageously evil. Don't be thrown off track. And thirdly, their plots are sometimes diabolically effective. Look how effective her plot was. Her plot was to get him in a position where he could not say no to her. And she played to his pride. And there is no way that he, having made a public oath in front of all these great men, was now going to back down. First of all, he never should have been in a drunken orgy in the first place as a birthday party. Secondly, he should never have had his own stepdaughter be used for the occasion to thrill his guests. Thirdly, he should never have made such an outrageous oath, which some people in our own day do. They have so many material things, they don't know what to do with them, and so they just pour them on their children and end up ruining them instead of taking their estates and putting them for use in the kingdom of God. Yes, of course, we, we bless our children materially. But you curse your children materially when you do whatever they want you to do. And here's a man who's absolutely drunken and corrupt, and he just wants to be popular with his own stepdaughter. He wants to be popular with these men. He wants to vaunt his own pride. And so he's wide open to the worst corruptions. And you see what happens to him is that Because he had made oaths before dinner guests, he'll take the life of Billy Graham. Because of his own pride, he would do that. That's exactly what he did. So, you and I live in a world where these kinds of things are happening. And this is the reason that Jesus has come not only to forgive sins, but to destroy them. And he is coming to bring peace. And the purpose of the incarnation is to bring the kingdom of God on the earth. And to renew all things. And one day he will. He will. But meanwhile, as we carry the message and live the life, we're doing it in a world that's a very corrupt place. And it happens to good men, righteous men like John the Baptist. But with all this said, that it is very difficult to identify Jesus. It's more difficult to identify with Him. Thirdly, in the very last verse, I want you to notice it would be most difficult not to identify with Jesus. Why do I say this? Well, let's look at the verse. It's just a very simple verse. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. You will find a very similar verse in chapter 15, verse 46. That it took the body of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea did, and respectfully took it and laid it in a tomb. This is intentionally parallel, as we have said, with everything about Jesus. And everything about Jesus through Saturday night looked like that the followers of Jesus were a bunch of idiots. Mary Magdalene was an idiot. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was an idiot. Peter, James, and John were idiots. Because of all the the grand things that they had proclaimed and all the hopes and dreams that Jesus had promised and they had attached their hearts to, He's now dead and gone. And cursed because he died on a cross. And cursed is any man who dies on a cross, we are told in the Old Testament. Total loss until Sunday morning. Total gain. Through his resurrection we understand the meaning of his incarnation. Through his resurrection we understand the meaning of his death. Through his resurrection, we understand the meaning of his perseverance through all kinds of evil and wickedness. Through his resurrection, we understand the meaning to eternal life. And when you take that blessed body of a saint and commit it to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, and dust to uh, to dust, you commit it to the ground in the hope, the blessed hope, the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. It is not the end when we come to our funerals. And that's the reason it's such a blessed thing to see so so many of you at funerals. Why is it important for us to go, just like these disciples? They treated the body with respect because they respected the man who lived in that body. And they treat that body with respect because they have a living hope that that body is coming back. It's going to be reconstituted. It's going to be a body like the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they come to console themselves and to console the family. It's a very Christian thing to do, to give yourselves to your friends who are bereaved and to wait with them in the living hope for the resurrection through everlasting life. And I cannot imagine, gentlemen, going through a corrupt world like this one with all the things that we see displayed for us in living color right here in this text and having no idea for how this is going to get corrected. I cannot see living this life knowing that your life is going to end in scope of history very soon. I'm 55. How long do you think I'm going to live? Maybe 30? Maybe 20? Maybe not even 10? I'm going to die soon. I cannot imagine living in this world and thinking this is it and when I die that's the end of things. How hopeless. How dark. Men of course are justified to commit suicide. I, I think sometimes suicide is the only reasonable conclusion to not having Christ. Why would one want to go on? And yet we find it is gloriously true that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And so will John the Baptist. And so will I. And so will you if you trust in Jesus Christ. And I would have to say, of all the difficulties in this world, the most difficult of all would be to hear this message and simply remain puzzled. To hear this message and not give yourself to the one who can raise you out of the ground. That's the most difficult thing of all. And I plead with anybody here who has not given their life to Christ. Give your life to Christ. Receive His love and forgiveness on Calvary's cross. Embrace the gift of Christmas in all of its meaning. He came to save sinners. Sinners who were just as bad as Herod and Herodias. Not that they were saved, but many like them were and are. And He comes to offer that to all of us. I cannot imagine living life without it. And therefore, I plead with all of us to embrace it. For those of you who have known Him for a long time, Delight yourself in the ultimate conquest over that kind of corruption and wickedness. He blows that away with the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. He blows it away. And one day we'll see it when he comes back to restore all things. And we'll all have a very fascinating conversation with John the Baptist and a lot of other people. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Gospel. And it is, Lord, difficult for us as sinners. In fact, it's impossible for us as sinners on our own part to believe it. And therefore, we need You to believe every day to show us the obvious that Jesus Christ has come into the womb of a virgin and has lived a perfect life and died for us on Calvary's cross and was raised to everlasting life and has prepared a place for His people. God, help us to believe the truth not just to be puzzled by it, not just to be entertained by it, but to be transformed by it. God, speak to our hearts this morning that we may open our souls to every gift You would give us, especially the gift of Your own Son, which we celebrate during this time of year in a special way. And Father, thank You that You've given a rich and wondrous promise so that even now we can still wait knowing that John the Baptist will be raised from that tomb, just as Jesus was raised from his. And so shall we. And with thanksgiving and gratitude, we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, gents. Merry Christmas.